Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. I have been waiting for this interview for a really long time, and I'm very excited that Chris Bailey's here. So, Chris, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. You bet. It's good to, good to be on here, man. Thanks for having me. How long yeah. have you been waiting? I know since it's been a lot of back August. to make this happen. Since yeah. August? Well, since, oh, yeah, since maybe before August. But so Chris was the keynote speaker at the Agile Conference, and so we weren't able to work out a time to do an interview at the conference, which actually, in retrospect, is okay, because I did 37 interviews in four days. Oh, my gosh. And, and I didn't have time to finish your books before, so now I'm super prepared. So Your mind must have been mush after those 37 You have no interviews. idea. <laughs> I can yes. barely do one in a day. 37 yeah. in five days. 30, 37 in four days. And then there was all the nighttime yeah. activity too, which I never yeah. exhibit a lot of. You know, you have your whole thing about um, you're going to pay for it the next day. I pay for it. <laughs> I'm just starting to feel better from that conference. Now. Yeah. The hangovers lasted two months. <laughs> it was a good conference. Yeah, it must um, have been. <laughs> so how do you describe to people what you do? Oh man, it depends if uh, they're my grandmother who, uh, you know, a grandparent, I, I don't think uh, would ever understand what I do now. <laughs> I don't know if my parents even understand, but um, I, I usually, because I'm, I'm kind of shy about what I do, maybe I usually, if somebody asks what I do, I say, oh, I'm a consultant because that leads to no further questions. But since I'm opening up on, on this here podcast, yeah, uh, I say, no. Yeah, I'm an open book man, and I write books on on productivity. So I've written two books because I'm such a curious nerd about this topic of productivity. I'm always learning new things about it, and I want to share what uh, what what works for me. I've just been a, a curious nerd for a, about a decade or more about this topic. You know the intricacies of how our mind works and how we can get it to focus, how we can manage our time a bit better, how, how, can, how we can cultivate how much energy we have over the span of the day. Um, and so, yeah, I, I write books on productivity. I give speeches on productivity. Um, I, you know, that's kind of my racket, I guess. And you run experiments. So, that, so for the folks that are listening, you can go to a lifeofproductivity.com and see a listing of some of the experiments that have been run. And the two books are The Productivity Project and Hyperfocus is the newer book. Yeah. So what's the key point that you're trying to get across with hyperfocus? With hyperfocus, it's that the state of our attention is what determines the state of our lives. And so we can extrapolate this idea across a couple of different time frames from the moment to our life, our work in general. So if we're distracted in each moment, we're going to lead a life that feels like we're distracted, like we don't have a clear vision for where we want to be. If we're overwhelmed in each moment, those moments never exist in isolation. They exist within the, within the context of a life, and they in turn add up to make a life that feels kind of overwhelmed. Yeah. But the same holds true in the inverse. And so if we make an effort to actively and deliberately manage our attention, an ingredient of productivity that we usually let the world manage for us. We, we let the email that comes in dictate whether uh, we should focus on that thing or what we should focus on. We, we, we let external stimuli determine the objects of our attention, but we should be determining those because attention is such a, such a potent and, and powerful ingredient in terms of how much we accomplish every single day. Um, you know, one, one statistic, a couple statistics, I, I never find statistics uh, that motivating in and of themselves. But one that comes to mind that kind of underscores this point uh, is 
when we're focused in front of a computer, when, when we're trying to you know, do some focus work, on average, we work on one thing for just 40 seconds before we switch to doing something else. And, and after we get distracted, when we're distracted completely, um, we're not, we can often get back on track, but oftentimes, other times, it takes us 25 minutes on average when we're distracted completely to get back on track and resume working on that original task. And, and so it just underscores this idea that attention is important. Attention makes a big difference in our productivity, in our creativity. And so we have to manage it. And, and the advice that's out there on managing our attention, a lot of it's good, but there's a lot of fluff out there too um, that, uh, surrounding this idea. So it, I went in deep uh, over the course of writing this book, Hyperfocus. And tried a bunch of different stuff. Some, some, and some of it worked and some of it didn't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, one, and sometimes lessons come from the most curious of places. And, and so one of the experiments I conducted that I chatted about at Agile Alliance back in, back in August, since we've been trying to uh, get yeah. in touch with one. Back another. in the day. Back in the day, <laughs> yeah, back before this uh, multi-month-long hangover that you're still struggling <laughs> to get through. One experiment that I shared stories from in that talk was uh, making myself bored for one hour every single day for a month. Excuse the siren in the background. I live in a small quaint town in Kingston, so it's rare that happens. Um, was making myself bored for an hour a day for, for a month. And so on the first day, I read the iTunes terms and conditions. Uh, I did things like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, move rocks from one place to another repeatedly. I read Wikipedia articles related to rope um, and, and 30, uh, you know, 27, 28 other things to experiment with this, um, with, with this idea of boredom, which is just our mind adjusting downward into a new lower level of stimulation. But it, it led to so many curious ideas that we don't come up with our best ideas when we're focused. We come up with them when our mind is wandering, when we deliberately let our attention wander. And maybe uh, boredom isn't the best thing, but maybe it is something that allows us to, to unearth some ideas that we wouldn't have arrived at otherwise. And so that's where the scatter focus is. So in, in, for the folks, if you're not familiar with the book, the first part of the book is lots of tips for productivity and how to achieve hyper-focus. The second part is about scatter focus. Yeah. And, and both modes involve deliberately managing our attention. And so hyper-focus is when we bring our full deliberate attention to something, whereas scatter focus is when we deliberately let our mind wander for a period of time, uh, whether it's by going on a walk through nature, whether it's laying down on the living room floor with just a notepad and seeing what I, ideas rise to the surface of our mind, whether it's going for a run or a bike ride and maybe listening to music, but not much else that consumes our full attention. Um, you know, it, it's these two, atten there, there are a lot of different modes uh, as it relates to our attention and our mind. But, but I think these two modes are worth zeroing in on, um, you know, this hyper-focus where we are able to accomplish more in one hour of focused attention than we might in some entire days and this scatter-focus mode, which we don't enter into enough of anymore. Do you think that as we move more towards, I mean, you talk about um, managing our energy and knowledge economy and things like that. Yeah. Are we moving to a state where each person is going to have to 
become sort of an expert at hacking themselves. I mean, in the same way that you're running experiments to figure out how much sleep you need, um, how much of this you need to consume or that you need to consume, mm-hmm. where are you willing to give things in and not give things in, um, to optimize your own productivity plus your own ability to experience the life that you want to experience. That's a do good we, question. Do yeah. we each need to get to that level of depth or is that something to uh, we should expect to move towards? I want to say yes, um, because that will sell more books. But, but I think <laughs> if, if anything, the answer is no. Okay. Um, be, because we all have so many data points at our disposal for... Uh, for when we've been productive, for when we've been creative. And, and definitely, you know, we, we need to account for how, uh, how much focused work we have to do, how much creative work we have to do. We have to schedule kind of around that. Um, but, but I think at the same time, we all have a ton of data points where, you know, we're always searching for, and this, I find this in myself all the time, I'm always lo- looking for that next productivity strategy that will give me the edge, even though I have more than enough data points at my disposal for when I was the most productive in the, in the past. Um, and, and so if you want to become more productive, sometimes the best thing to do isn't to turn to a book on productivity. It's, it's, <laughs> it's to, to do some shit. Yeah, it's to actually get some <laughs> stuff done or like look in the, in the past and think, okay, when was I the most productive? Okay. What conditions were true that led me to experience that level of productivity? And we, we can do this for different variables that we want to increase. Uh, when I saved the most money, what was true? Maybe it didn't go to the bar that much. Um, when, when you were the most creative, what was true? Maybe you had more space around the different things that you were working on. When you were the happiest, what conditions were true? Were you spending more time with uh, family? Were you actively looking out to, to make time for friends? You know, were you more defensive of that time as well? We have so much data at our disposal. I think we do have to personalize this a little bit because when you look at, and if there's one kind of message that, that I hope these, these books get across and any future books that I write, it's that like, First of all, I hate giving advice, and so it's kind of a weird position to be in. I, I like to share what works for for me and help. You know, hopefully that inspires other people. But we also need to look to ourselves for advice on on uh, for these very topics because we have more than enough to give ourselves. Um, we just need some uh, introspection. So that that leads me to my one of my favorite quotes from your two books, and I'm going to kind of slide into it backwards. Yeah, you talk about. Um, guilt a little bit yeah there's a line at the end of the book where you said if i talk to my friends the way i talk to myself i doubt i'd have any friends left and that's in a section of the book where you're talking about giving yourself advice which is what you just brought up um so how do we go about doing that without just saddling ourselves with like you suck you're not productive enough you should do more yeah that's a good question Uh, i i think if there's one antidote to guilt it is intention uh, it's it's approaching our work with a level of deliberateness and intentionality and, and guilt is it's one of three uh, emotions that often come up as we strive to become more productive there's guilt but there's also doubt that we experience and there's also worry that we experience and each of these three feelings, uh, guilt, doubt, and worry, they come from the same place, which is uh, acting with a lack of intentionality. Because when we choose what we do, 
and what we focus on before we do or focus on something, there's no room for these emotions to arise. Uh, you know, these emotions come flooding in when there's a lack of intentionality behind whatever it is that we're doing, whether we're listening to a podcast, whether it's reading a book on productivity, whether it's sipping a cup of coffee, whatever the hell it is that we're doing, if there's intention behind that action, these emotions don't have room because guilt is really just um, a sort of tension that comes from how we've spent our time with the past. Um, doubt sort of is this tension that we experience when we question what we're doing in the present. And worry is this uh, feeling that comes from the future um, for something that hasn't happened yet that actually probably won't happen. Most of the things that we do worry about never end up materializing. But all of these things come in because we don't determine how we spend our time, attention, and energy ahead of time. This is the best antidote that I found to these three feelings. And, and, and this, this totally blew me away when I first research, started researching this topic of productivity. I thought productivity, like a lot of people probably maybe listening to this, to this show, I thought productivity was about doing more, 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 faster, 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 and hustling, hustling, and answering everything and, and doing everything. But if we approach our work with this sort of directionless force, we're never going to accomplish anything of importance. It's really the, the greatest productivity that we will ever experience will come from working with deliberateness and with intention on what's actually important. And one of the beautiful side effects of doing so is that these feelings of guilt and doubt and worry, they don't have room to exist in a life filled with intention. Okay. So, so part of the key for you then is creating space to be aware of the choices that you're making to make intentional choices. And regardless of what happens, at least you, you had the agency to make that decision and to, to see what you could learn from it. Yeah. So. I, I think agency is the perfect word. We have more agency than, than we think we do. Um, we, we shouldn't let our email inbox be our to-do list. We should sit down at the start of each day and think, okay, what do I want to accomplish by the time this day is done? I usually pick three things because it, that, that's a number that fits with the way that we think. And it's, it, it's, a number that we re, it's a number of things that we remember as the day goes on. Um, and and we, we need to constantly refer back to the intentions that we set and set them in the first place. Um, and and one, of the, one of the wonderful strategies that, that I've I found helpful for this, um, to do this on a daily basis is to set an hourly chime on your phone. Um, so every hour on the hour, you can set, set a little chime. There are, there are countless apps that, that do this. And when the chime goes off, ask, am I working with intention or am I working on autopilot mode, letting other people dictate what I focus on. And, and like, we never have total control over the work that we do. That's obvious. Everybody knows that. But we usually have more agency than we think we do. Or the, yeah, then we allow ourselves the, the freedom to, to take advantage of, to take ownership yeah. of. We, we see limits everywhere uh, where there aren't any limits. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you one quick little story because it happened today. Uh, I was at the gym and I was doing one of those leg press things where you put your two feet on the like the flat the surface. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you push it. And I usually do like 150 pounds 
um, on that machine. And I wasn't really paying attention. I sat down, I did the exercise. Oh, it feels a bit heavier. Um, and I looked over and instead of 150 pounds, it's at 280 pounds. I thought, okay, <laughs> I was incrementally pushing past this 150 pound limit, even though I could have just looked over and, and doubled it and, and saw what happened. Like we see limits everywhere uh, with regard to how much freedom we have with work, with what we work on in the first place, uh, with money. You know, we can totally disconnect from all control money has on us when we just spend a fraction of what we make, which is hard to do at first, but easy to settle into. Like we see limits everywhere in our life. Yeah. And I, I don't want to turn this into some like corny ass uh, motivational, live a limitless life that has like a trademark <laughs> or a restricted sign at the end of it, like some douchebag podcast guest. But it's so true. We see limits everywhere. And oftentimes, usually even, you might think they don't exist. So I had a thing where I ran a personal Kanban experiment for six months and I had yeah. a coach guide me through it. And the most impactful thing I learned from it was I am so much happier than I thought I was <laughs> with the wow. work that I, because it was like, I have all this crap to do. And I would be like, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that. But when I sat down and looked at it, I'm like, I want to do everything on this list. This isn't yeah. actually a problem. The problem is there's more than I can get done. And just having somebody show me that stuff and or help me become more aware of it was just transformative. I mean, yeah. it, that I think studying your own productivity, studying how you work can teach you a lot about yourself. I mean, I'm assuming you learned a lot more about the choices that you make. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Time. Yeah. It's, um, and, and that, that happiness idea is, uh, I think it's something worth reflecting on because we think our work makes us miserable when really the reality is we're often happier at work than we are at home because it's not the attributes of a task that make us happy. It's whether we're focused on something. We can focus on a phone book and be happy as long as we can, fo as long as we're engaged with something and focused on it, we're going to be happy. And, and so when we have deadlines, when we have things to focus on, sometimes things are more tedious than others, but we'll never be as happy when we're disengaged with something that we're doing um, as we are when we're engaged with something we're doing, regardless of how, how tedious that thing might be. You mean like meditation? Yeah. See oh, that? look at that segue. <laughs> so, I wanted to ask you about this. I know you're working on a book about it, but I had one specific question before you start talking about it. Yeah. When I go, I'm assuming that this happens to you, but occasionally, but there, sometimes I'll, that something will happen and it'll be like two or three days and I won't sit. And then when I do, that first day back, it's like, I got to let the whole tape unspool. And it's just, it's like the worst day ever because <laughs> everything, because it just, I'm so used to it and it becomes such a part of my daily routine that when I don't yeah. have that, it's almost like inbox zero for your brain. There's a lot of stuff that has to get cleaned out before I can get back to where I'm actually sitting with, with what I want to be, with the intention and focus that I want to be sitting with. Does that happen for you or not? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I think maybe less than it used to because uh, you know, I, I have these capture rituals. Sometimes because I deal with ideas, I, ideas are the currency uh, with which I work. Um, ideas and Canadian dollars. That's, that's, those are the two <laughs> currencies that I deal with every day. Um, I'll, I'll often just kind of sit down with a notepad and capture the, the to-dos and the things I'm waiting on 
and the people I should contact that come up to the surface of my mind. And so I experience fewer of those things arise during meditation. But okay. absolutely, absolutely, especially for longer sits. I, you know, for, for many, many years, I've had a daily 30-minute uh, meditation ritual. But of course, like any person who meditates, um, there, there are many days when, when I don't have a chance to do it, when I have to wake up at 5.30 in the morning to hop on a flight and then travel all day and yeah. run from one thing to another, to another, to another. Um, I, I, I think you can meditate anywhere, including on a plane, on a train, wherever you want to. But, um, but it, it just doesn't always happen for, for whatever reason. And I find that the mind does get more agitated beyond that point. I, I, I think it's a, we, you, you can kind of like equate it to RPMs. Like there are okay. certain RPMs that, that our mind operate on. And when you, when you meditate more often, your mind hums. It doesn't like rev up and then crash. Um, but, but it has a consistent hum um, of energy, of thought, of focus throughout the day um, that isn't present when, when you have to, you know, when, when you have to take a break for a few days and you find that your mind revs up, but it's just because you're aware of how mind you're active, you're, uh, how active your mind is in the first place. And so, yeah, I definitely experienced that. So how does that affect your productivity? I mean, you, I know you draw this big connection in the books between meditation and productivity but how does it impact your ability to be more hyper focused when you're doing work yeah there, there, there are multiple things that meditation influences um so one is our working memory capacity um so when we have an active meditation ritual our working memory capacity which is the scratch pad of our mind has been shown to be about 30 percent bigger and so we can process more in, in every single moment of the day. Uh, we become more mindful of, of what is on our mind throughout the day. Um, of course, right? You would hope meditation would make you more mindful, especially if you're practicing something like med mindfulness meditation where you're, where you're uh, bringing awareness to your breath. And we focus on what's in front of us for just 53% of the day. The other 47% of the day, our mind is wandering. And so if we can increase that amount of time, that we're focused, take work for an example. If we can up that by 10, by 20%, we can gain back so much time and how much more deeply we're able to focus. Um, meditation, it, it decreases the self-talk. And so more of our thoughts have to do with what we're trying to focus on. In all of these ways and more, we get back the time that we spend on the meditation cushion. And, and this is how I measure productivity advice, by the way, is not all productivity advice is built equally because for every minute you spend reading about productivity or listening to a, a podcast like this one <laughs> about productivity, you have to make that time back and then some, right? Yeah. Because or else you're just like consuming productivity porn, which is fun to consume, but you don't necessarily have anything to show for that time. Uh, yeah. Reading about people's morning rituals are a really good example of this. Like, okay, Melinda Gates and Richard Branson do a certain thing every morning. They also have billions of dollars in the bank yeah. and an entire staff of people to work with. No two people live the same life. Look, look in your past to find the data points. Look in your past to find the data points. But meditation is one of those strategies whereby for every minute we spend meditating, we make, in, in my estimation, and it's a very conservative estimation, nine minutes back in productivity. And obviously there's a point of diminishing returns because 
or, or else the, the ideal strategy would be to meditate for seven hours and 59 minutes and work for one minute. And then you'd, you'd be in the, the hospital with leg pain. Yeah, exa- yeah exactly. <laughs> or you'd be enlightened and then Ooh, yeah, wouldn't have to work then in you're the busy. place. <laughs> yeah, then you got a lot to do. Then you have no money. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but uh, you know, the, up to a period of about 30 minutes, I think that that's where the, the returns begin to diminish. Uh, you, you really do earn back that much time because you notice you've gotten distracted. Like that, that previous statistic, that we focus on one thing on average for 40 seconds. Yeah. What if you up that to five minutes to 10 minutes? What if instead of falling into a pit of distraction and losing 25 minutes of productivity, you avoid that trap just once, just once throughout the day, you don't distract yourself. Your meditation ritual has paid for itself already. Just with that one time that you notice that you were about to distract yourself, set aside working memory capacity, set aside increased focus for, for just one second. Or catch yourself in the, self, in the negative self-talk. Exactly. Yeah. And this is something that I also like to cover in, in the books. We're so hard on ourselves when we, when we make an effort to become more productive because the very idea that we're investing in our productivity implies on some level, that we're not entirely satisfied with where we're at already. And so meditation is this beautiful ritual that, God, it just makes you happier. It, it helps you come to terms with how things change, which is all happiness is in the first place. It lets you enjoy work more by making you more engaged with it because the more you engaged you are with your work and your life, the happier you become. And it's, just, it's one of the best strategies I know of for becoming more productive. Well, so if somebody's listening to this and they want to take a crack at meditation, yeah. um, a lot of the people that, I mean, for me, it was, I mean, I came to it more of like, I've got to figure out how to cope with this stuff better. I got to deal with this. And it, so it wasn't like, I'm going to be blissful or whatever, but I get a lot of, I talk to a lot of people about it and they want to try it and they're like, I can't do it. I can't do it because my mind races too much. I'm too busy. Um, and I can see where somebody would sit down and be like, I'm going to meditate for five minutes. And then they try to focus on how to be the most productive with following their breath for five minutes. Hmm. And the idea is just to let go and not dance with the stuff. So yeah. how, how, what kind of, I mean, as some, since you're, you're working on this book and, and people are going to be asking these questions, what kind of advice do you have for somebody who's new to this to become okay with just sitting there with the spazzy different things that are going on in their head? Yeah. Here's why you should meditate. Um, The breath is not very interesting. It's very boring. It's like looking at at a wall for for a period of, let's say you meditate for five minutes. It's like staring at a wall. It's about that interesting because the breath is just there. It's always been there. We don't need to to do anything to, to try to become engaged with it. But if you can focus on your breath, You can focus on anything because of that fact. The breath is so boring that if you can become engaged with it, you can become engaged with anything. You you can talk to your in-laws even, maybe if that's a goal of yours. Like whatever, Whatever it is that you want to set your attention to do, you'll be able to do. And the way by which you get to the point that you're able to focus on and become engaged with your overactive mind is by focusing on the breath. Um, and, and it's impossible to do. And I, I think most people set themselves up for failure with meditation because their expectations are too big. They're yeah. too high. They think, oh, 
I should be able to focus on the breath for five minutes. I can calculate complex mathematical proofs with, <laughs> with five minutes. I can do a plank for five minutes, for God's sake. Why can't I just focus on the breath? Why can't I just sit here and stare at the floor for five minutes? Exactly. <laughs> like it's, it seems like the most like the easiest thing in the world when in fact it's one of the most difficult things that we can do with our time. But so yeah. is a plank. So is a mathematical proof. And, and meditation is not an end in itself. It's one that leads to productivity benefits. It's one that leads to uh, us to become engaged and happy with whatever it is that we're doing in the moment. And, and so there, there's a great quote that I love um, where, uh, you know, some, like the only way out is through. I forget yeah. who said that, but that's, that's the path of meditation. Meditation is helpful, not in spite of it being frustrating, but because it's so frustrating. Like some, some days you'll sit and focus on your breath and you'll be able to focus on it for 20 seconds. And that'll be an amazing day because your mind won't be racing in every which way. It'll be like, like staring up at a clear blue sky. Very, very simple. In other days, a storm cloud will roll in. Um, your breath is still there, but there's more emotion obscuring it. You feel like, I don't know if you've ever watched one of those, um, uh, like Anderson Cooper in a hurricane where he's standing yeah. <laughs> ankle deep in a, yes. in like a flooded abandoned street yeah. where the wind sweeps. Some days your mind is like that too, but approach it with a curiosity. Uh, you know, people are so rigid when they meditate too, with a genuine curiosity. Um, think, okay, where's my mind going to wander today? What Weird shit is sorry. You might have to believe. You no, know, you can say whatever you want. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's good. Now, what weird shit is it going to bring forth today? What? How much is it going to wander? Am I going to be able to focus for a long time, and or am I going to be able to like, or will I be standing in the middle of the hurricane of thought that rolls in unexpectedly? Um, but deal with it. I mean, yeah. the, the expectations ruin pretty much everything. Um, whatever we pay attention to, we're comparing what we pay attention to, to how we thought that thing would go. Don't make meditation one of those things. Just focus on the breath. And when you yeah, fall don't down, judge it. Well, yeah, don't judge it. Like uh, just when you fall down and you will repeatedly get back up, refocus on the breath. Notice you've gotten distracted, refocus on the breath. Notice you've gotten distracted, refocus on the breath. Notice you've gotten distracted, focus on the breath. And then you can... You can take this with you the rest of the day too. It's it's yeah. wonderful. The only there way were, I was through. There were two things that, that I was told when I first started doing it. One was, and this is a guy who used to be a monk. He said when he started meditating that somebody told him that it took him uh, 10 years to learn how to breathe. Yeah. I'm like, well, that didn't make any <laughs> sense to me. And now I'm like, I get that now. Yeah, I hope I get there soon. I hope I figure it out at some yeah. point. Uh, and yeah. the other was a monk told him that if, if you sit like, and he was like living in a monastery and they're sitting all day long. And he's like, if you get one breath where everything drops away, like that's, that's a, something to rejoice in. Like, that's great. Yeah. And everybody's got those days where it's just spinning and you can't, all you can do is watch the carousel and try not yeah. to climb on it. Yeah, where, where you barely climb on it. You know, you notice, you, you just notice your, your mind wandering for the entire time. But I mean, what a great opportunity to practice some self-kindness. Sometimes my mind will be so busy because I'm dealing with so much. And even though I meditate every, every single day for half an hour, my mind is still racing. But I'll, I'll just say, okay, mind, you know, run off. Where do you want to go thing. today? I'll, yeah. I'll, be, I'll be there with you just kind of watching. And sometimes that, you know, we, we try to 
hold on to our mind and control our thoughts so much that you know our thought our mind is slippery right the the more we try to grab onto it the 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 more it it gets away from us so sometimes just letting our mind be and say okay mind where do you want to go today and yeah. then it settles down and and i think this is like with all the other productivity tips that you have in your books i mean the more you come back to them the more you can turn them into habit i mean you've got you talk a lot about the charles Dewey. is that his yeah. And the more you come back to the repetition of it and find the triggers and get these things to occur, like just showing up to the mat and sitting every day, that's going to help. Yeah. Even um, if it's one minute, it doesn't matter. You know, it, I, I really do believe that one minute every single day is better than two hours minutes. on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. I have a teacher who also used to say that uh, she sits every day because of what happens when she doesn't. <laughs> and what what is that? What what happens? Well, to- I, I took that and I was like, yeah, that's because I turn into a complete asshole every yeah. time I do. <laughs> like, I mean, I can't cope with anything. It's just, it's funny. Like to me, it slows the ball down. Yeah. Right. And and it helps you see things and take them apart a little bit easier with and then be more intentional, I think, which is what a lot of your yeah. stuff seems to be focused and on. And that, that's why it helps us so much. And here's kind of the, the trap that we fall into with a lot of things, eating well, uh, exercising quite a bit, getting into a good yoga routine, meditation falls into this. It, it, I, I refer to it, at least in my own mind, I haven't written about this anywhere, as a success trap where yeah. sometimes something works so well that you stop doing it, right? Your antidepressants make you happy, and so you think you don't need them. Uh, you, you become so fit that okay, I, I guess I could, you know, cut back on this gym ritual a, a little bit. Yeah. But what you're really doing is you're you're chipping away at the good habits that made you successful in the first place. And so it, it's something that, you know, when when you look back on the data points of when you were the most productive, and maybe this this conversation will remind you of a few of them. Think okay, that, that made me productive in the past. What happened? What, what habits should I revisit here that will uh, lead to similar results down the line? I think it also goes back to that expert podcast that you did. I mean, when you become an expert, the fear that you, you stop learning. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know? Sometimes, and I, I see a lot of people fall into this and uh, it's shameful to admit, but I, I met this, I fell into this trap for, God, three, six months after my first book came out. So, so my first book, The Productivity Project came out and it was successful. It was on the bestsellers list. It was doing well. It was getting good media attention. And I thought, okay, because the attention provides you with validation. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay, I've, I'm, I'm here. I've got it made. I'm here. Yeah. Ask me anything. I'll be able to answer it. And if I don't know, I'll just bullshit you. And yeah. uh, <laughs> You're an expert. I'm an expert. <laughs> You're an enlightened expert. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, if you want to reach productivity, enlightenment, come follow me. But really just <laughs> calling yourself an expert shuts you off to learning new, new things. And so I've come to believe over time, I, I love admitting where I fail in my books because the, the, the ironic thing is people are able to connect with you more when you're a bit vulnerable in what you're talking about, what you're writing about. And so they're more likely to do what you're writing about because you share what doesn't work along with yeah. what does. And so the book becomes more helpful if, if, you're, if you have this level of vulnerability and, and openness. I don't have it all the time. It's impossible to because you know, it's, it's just difficult. But, but wherever possible, I, I try to frame the, the work that I do is, okay, I'm, I'm just a bit 
further along on this journey than, than the average reader right, might be. This is the stuff that I've learned over the last decade of experimenting with and exploring productivity. And hopefully you can take a few lessons from this. Um, I, I think a red flag for any conversation um, where you're listening to somebody being interviewed, especially when somebody that wrote the book and is getting a lot of validation and you know the process kind of pumps up the ego. When they pretend to know everything about a topic, you should not listen to that person. <laughs> run away. <laughs> yeah, run far, far away from anyone who pretends they have everything together. Yeah. Um, you know, my one of my favorite happiness experts, Sean Acor, um, who's a Harvard-trained psychologist, he's open about the fact that he feels depressed and that he doesn't follow his advice all the time. Arianna Huffington um, of the Huffington Post, who writes a lot of wellness books, says she follows her advice, 80% 80, 80 of her advice, 80% of the time. Uh, I like to say that a similar thing with regard to the work that I do. Anyone who says they do 100% of the stuff they write about and talk about 100% of the time is lying through their teeth. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's a red flag. I'm glad that you said that because I think a lot of people don't don't let that don't let people know that you're too busy trying to protect their brand. Yeah. Yeah, they think that um that it's kind of a knock against them if if they're open about where they feel fail, but people won't stop following you if you admit that you fail. Maybe maybe the right people will stop following you. <laughs> <laughs> this is great, man. I really appreciate you taking time out for this. Yeah, you um so you're working on the meditation book. Any idea when yeah. that'll be? available? No clue. No, no clue. It's, um, it, it's not going to be a traditionally published book. It's uh, audible. Ha well, I guess it's traditionally published because it's through audible, but uh, much as Netflix has Netflix originals, audible has audible originals. And so it's going to oh, be, cool. yeah, it's going to be an audible original on the ways that meditation makes us more productive, how to meditate, um, how to, uh, how to become more engaged. Uh, and you know, the exact scientific uh, reasons that meditation helps our performance at work and beyond. And so it's like a kind of a weird niche book. I don't know how, how many people will connect with it. Um, it could flop. It could be a big success. I don't really care um, because I, I just want to get that message <laughs> out there. But um, yeah, well, I'm looking uh, forward I'm to listening to it. Whenever Man, we got, we got one download. That's there good. Go. It's free with your <laughs> Audible membership, I think. <laughs> Well, yeah, let me know well, when, when it's ready. Let me know and I'll add this to the links for the for the podcast. But oh, if people want to get in touch with you, they can go to alifeofproductivity.com, follow you on Twitter at Chris underscore Bailey, and they can pick up the books on. Is there any particular place you want them to pick up the books? Oh, man. No, I'm just grateful if somebody does. It's um, okay. It, 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 I think it's cheapest on Amazon. I, I think you support your community the most by paying like two or three extra dollars if you buy it from a local bookseller, which is always nice. Um, and uh, yeah, they're all on Audible as well. If you like the sound of my voice, if you don't like the sound of my voice, there's the digital and the physical versions of the book. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Dude, I really appreciate you. Thank, this, thank you very much for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully that was helpful. <laughs> 